0: Well, I hope you had a good week. Uh, like every week, I spent this week working in after-school care. And after-school care, there's a lot of interesting things that go on. Uh, the kids at my place, they like to uh, build bases and obstacle courses, they like sand castles. Uh, as you all know, I've been very effective in training them how to play American football. I love it. But I think my favorite, favorite thing we've done is when the kids decided they were gonna play law and order. So we had this uh, courtroom set up, and I don't know why we chose it, but the theme of the day was bakery burglaries. So we had all these court cases where these kids were being tried for stealing bagels from bakeries, and we had the judge set up, and then we had our defendant, obviously, the guy being accused, he's going to go to jail, maybe. And then we've got the police prosecutor on one side of the courtroom, we've got the defence attorney on the other. And the, the, the defendant had the chance to represent himself, if he wasn't, or themselves, if they weren't happy with uh, the defence lawyer's work. And I've got to admit, that was definitely me. I fired my defence attorney halfway through to defend myself. And I just got to say that the prosecutors really went for it, you know, they were really going at it, they were cross-examining the, uh, the defense lawyers, the defendant was digging himself into, into holes, and uh, what happened a few times was the judge was like, silence, silence in the court, order, order, and then the, that was one of their favorites, but the other favorite was guilty. We had a lot of trigger-happy judges who were sentencing people to jail, left, right, and center, even when people were innocent. They actually proved my innocence, but they sentenced me anyway. So, great times. Nice to know I'm loved. Um, But that's law and order in the schoolyard. And our absolute mockery of a court system was a real source of laughter and entertainment. But just as uh, our bad court system was a sense of laughter and entertainment. So TV show writers like to craft stories that, you know, make the court seem a little dodgy. They have some bad judges, some prejudiced prosecutors, some shifty defense lawyers in there. And that's, oh, and of course, criminals who get away without punishment. They do that just, you know, make the story a bit more interesting and gets us involved. but. Why does it get us involved other than just making the obstacles harder for the hero to make us cheer them on? I think it's because, in some way, it pokes and prods at our own sense of justice. There is, I think, in all of us a sense of justice, and that's why we are so happy when our hero wins, when our hero overcomes the bad court system in the movie or TV show. And once that happens, the, the guy wins, we can hop off our couches satisfied that morality has won the day, and we just go about our day and do whatever. Sometimes though, the writers of the shows get a little bit tricky, and they leave us on a cliffhanger where it looks like the protagonist is not gonna win. And then we're like, oh man, I'm so immersed in the story. And I don't know about you, but like, you might think about it during the week. You're like, what's gonna happen to my guy? Is he going to win? Is he gonna get out? And the reason that keeps us involved, I think, is because our sense of justice is, is left yearning. There's a part of us which is like, no, this isn't right. Something's got to be done here. But this sense of justice, I don't think is just restricted to film and TV. I believe there is in all of us a distinct sense of justice that carries into the real world I distinctly remember in year 10 legal studies, we went to court, the class, to watch people get tried and sentenced, and it amazed me how people who committed relatively minor crimes got harsh sentences, and people who committed serial, uh, seriously bad crimes continually and showed no remorse were let off lightly. And I think it wasn't just me in our class that sense of, this isn't right. And you know it's our senses of justice they're not just about societal issues of course that's very clearly there if you think about like the black lives matter protests both in america and that happened in brisbane last year and i think there's this sense that it moves beyond society to us also like think about like your friend someone does something bad to your friends you fire up you want to defend your friend same if like someone picks on your brother or sister, you can pick on your brother or sister but no one else can, like that's my brother, or that's my sister, leave him alone, get out of here, there's a sense of justice that has been wronged but we can feel it particularly when we are wronged and sometimes it f- we f- might flare up in anger, particularly if it's a more of a minor wrong but other times it can leave us with this deep sense of sadness uh, there's this part of us that that knows what has happened isn't right, and sometimes it can be painful, and sometimes hurt does run really deep. And so there's a question for us then. Given that our experiences tend to show us that this world is just so unjust, and despite all the effort we can put into making the world better, and it doesn't seem to, what hope is there? Is there a way forward in this mess? Or are we essentially doomed to just be disappointed that our longing for justice, our hope for justice is always gonna be let down? Or maybe it's not quite that drastic. Maybe we have to settle for an optimistic pessimism. Where we're like, all right, look, bad things are gonna happen, but maybe if we can just reduce the consequences a bit, maybe that's what we've got to settle for. And then, whilst we might think these things when we see all the, the pain in the world and then look at the issues in our own friends' lives, our lives, our families, we ask ourselves the question, where is God, the God of justice, in all of this? Tonight, we're going to explore that question. And we're going to do three things. First, we're going to, look at a text and find out what it says. Then we're gonna take all the different concepts floating around in that text and bring it together into one really big picture, clear picture, big overview, so we know exactly what we're dealing with. And then we're gonna use that to answer our question. And then once that's done, we're gonna say, all right, if this is the answer, what does that mean for how we live our lives? So with that in mind, we come to our first point. What is our text, and what does it say? Tonight, we're going to look at the parable of the persistent widow, continuing on in our parable series. And for a bit of context, this parable is given in the last few weeks of Jesus' life. So his ministry is coming to an end here, and obviously the disciples have a lot of background knowledge, now having spent three years with him. You can find it in Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. I'm reading from the NIV. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time, he refused. But finally, he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God, all care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones, who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes Will he find faith on the earth? Well, it we, we probably has some mixed feelings about this parable. On one hand, the verse straight up tells us this is a parable about prayer. And we're like, good. We don't have to figure out what's going on here. Parable about prayer. And it also seems very straightforward, right? right so we've got this parable about prayer and it's telling us that this is going to help us when we don't feel like praying. And then we might think, that's pretty obvious. Like, what do you need to say about that? It's, it's like right there. It tells you what you need. I went back and looked at all the um, ancient Christian writers and what they said about this prayer and they're like, I don't know, man, let's just, just read it. It's pretty obvious. Like, I don't have anything to say about it, really. Modern, modern scholars say the same thing. But then we might think, on the other hand, well, if this is a parable about encouraging us to pray, how in the world is this answering our question about justice? And what is this thing about a son of man? And why does it matter if he finds faith on earth when he arrives? I think the best way to get our heads around what's going on is to look at the verses and break them down and then reconstruct them. So we see seen the first verse that we're explicitly told this is a parable. So what is the difference between a parable and, say, a fable? Right? So I, I remember when I was in primary school, my favorite fable was the story. You know the story about the turtle and the rabbit and they go on like that running race and the rabbit's like, yeah, this is the on the champion. Oh, the turtle's way back there, I'm just gonna knock off for a couple of hours. And he has a nap and then he wakes up and finds that he's lost to the turtle. Well, that's a fable because its, its content is limited to a commentary on morality. A parable commentates morality it's not a it's not a requirement but it's a general feature and it is designed to change our perceptions about god it's meant to be um, uncomfortable it's meant to shake up our conceptions the ideas we have so this straight up tells us then that we should expect in this passage to find our idea of god challenged there's a second thing here though Is just me, does anyone else see the words, pray and do not give up, and think, that's not the way the Bible usually talks. I don't know about you, but I've never seen the words, and do not give up, in the Bible. Well, that's because I did some research, and there's a translation of a word called ekeo in Greek, which means to become faint or weary, to run out of steam, just like the rabbit in his race. And so if we bring these two things together it's telling us that this prayer sorry, this this parable is a sign to help us pray when we are too tired to pray so it prevents fatigue in prayer or when we are fatiguing whilst praying it's meant to give us the energy to continue so verse 2 and 3 then moving on moves us into the parable itself where we find an immoral judge and a widow now Here's the interesting bit, right? We're like, yes, right, here is the content that's gonna answer our question. It's a court scene, justice and injustice happens in courts. We've got a question about justice. So here it is. In this story, we find a court scene with three players. There's a judge, there's a widow. She's the, the plaintiff, as all the legal studies guys will say. She's the one bringing the action. And then there's her adversary, the defendant. And, uh, the question is, what's going on in this court case? I'm going to say as so a disclaimer straight up that I am going to base my interpretation of this court case on the assumption that this court case is happening in the Jewish legal system. Whilst Jesus was alive in Israel, Israel was ruled by two legal systems at the same time Jewish and Roman. So, everything I say about the injustices we're going to see in this story in the Jewish system technically still apply to the Roman system, but for completely different reasons which I'm not going to go into because that's going to make us sound like an hour long. So, what happens? The first thing to note is that the widow is representing herself. This is very strange in ancient Israel. So there's a lot of feminist commentary on this passage as to whether or not Jesus is challenging patriarchal Jewish ideas towards women because the woman is representing herself. I honestly... uh, do not think that is the case here, and I'll explain why. So although we, we know that in ancient Israel at the time, women were not permitted to testify in court as witnesses because they were women, we have no evidence that they couldn't bring legal cases. Right? And we know that the Greek and Egyptian women had the right to bring legal cases for hundreds of years before this story, and we know that 100 years after this story that women were bringing legal cases at least in Roman courts, in Israel. So I'm of the opinion that the woman representing herself is not so much about challenging patriarchal ideas, although I think it does probably have that effect to some degree. I think it's actually showing us that there's a deeper injustice happening to the widow here. In ancient Israel, widows were not meant to represent themselves in court, not because they were incapable. The Old Testament, has a very famous scene where four sisters bring a successful legal challenge uh, to the leaders and win. So it's nothing to do with her being capable because she's a woman. It's to do with the fact that Jewish society was organised to some degree to disadvantage widows. And so it would make it very difficult for her as a widow to get justice in the courts. So she should have a male relative fight the case on her behalf to increase the probability of getting a successful outcome. What we see then is that there's no male relative to fight her case, which even means all of her male relatives are dead and she's in a very bad position, if that's the case, or her male relatives have abandoned their role as advocates for her. So she is in a very bad position here. The judge, oh yeah, now in terms of the opponent, we don't know what he did, but I think the parable's tone shows us that he is not the good guy here. And I think that becomes even more obvious now when we realize he's attacking a widow who's got no familial support, no family support, and probably not a great deal of money either. So he's obviously not a good guy to be doing this. The judge in this parable also isn't a particularly nice fella. He is a bad judge. It straight out says that he has no concern for morality because he does not fear God or the commandments and he has no concern for his reputation. He does not care what people think of him, and he is not going to be bullied by people's opinions into doing the right thing, either because it's right, or to make himself look like a better man than he is. Which tells us straight up, we are not going to expect good things for this widow in this court case. So the widow goes to the judge, the judge hears the case, and he basically goes, go away. I'm not gonna give you what you want. And that is absolute travesty in ancient Israel. In ancient Israel, the divinely given law said that widows were a protected class of citizen, and judges were particularly meant to uphold their rights. So here we see that a judge who is meant to represent God's character and God's kingdom is now trampling that underfoot to attack a special especially um, a class of citizen with special rights by God because of their disadvantaged social status, and he is just letting her adversary, her opponent, succeed and probably get richer at her expense. The way she then talks to the judge is really interesting. So in our English translation of the Bible, it says... She goes to the judge and says, grant me justice against my adversary. That is not what the Greek says. The Greek says, avenge me against my adversary. Now, I can understand why they did not put avenge me in the translation of the New Testament, because that could seriously be taken the wrong way, because avenge has some very negative connotations but i think it's an important word here because it's going to connect later on to the end of the parable and it's going to tie us directly back to our question about justice but the word used here is important because avenge is a very strong word it shows that she's in deep pain that she has been deeply wronged there's probably some sort of like honor or face that's been stripped from her in her position and something needs to be done about it you do not avenge things if nothing has been abused or mistreated or broken in the first place. And so whilst we do not know what it would look like to avenge here, we can be pretty confident it's got to be related to the severity of the the crime being committed against her. Anyway, the judge uh, continues to put her off, even after her strong pleas, and She keeps, she's like, I'm just going to keep persisting. So she comes and she goes, she comes and she goes, she comes and she goes, she comes and she goes. And eventually, the judge gets to this point where it's like, I am sick of this. And he says uh, in the verse, I'm going to give her what she wants so she doesn't attack me. Now, the Greek word here is to give someone a black eye, all right? So he's not actually concerned about, you know, being smashed up in the street, because it, it's, a, um, it's a metaphor for when athletes would train themselves for the Olympics in Greece. It's like to like, put yourself under great stress and strain to secure an objective. And so he's like, all right, if I don't do this, she is gonna wear me down badly. And so he goes, right, here it is, here's your justice, get out of my court. I don't wanna see you ever again, essentially. And so the good news is she gets justice but our story doesn't end there. Jesus cuts the parable and then gives the explanation. He says, the woman got justice, now listen to what the judge says. He then creates a just position between the judge and God, which is really good because otherwise you might be thinking, i we the widow and is God a judge who we can only get justice from by pestering him? Like, Does he not want to give justice? But no, Jesus says, If this bad judge is going to give justice because he is pestered into it, how much more is a good God going to quickly bring justice to those who love him? And it is here that we then see that his servants, the people who are in relationship with him, are now crying out to God, avenge me, avenge me, and God will answer. So now we go back full circle to our first verse, and we see that because God is going to bring justice, we are motivated to pray. With all this in mind, we might think, excellent, let's move on to bringing this all together and find our, our answer to our question about injustice. But we're not quite there yet, and there's still two more things to consider. Firstly, there is the ending what is this return of the Son of Man? Well, the return of the Son of Man is a way to say that the Messiah, in this case Jesus, is going to return in the future, and he's going to bring justice. And the saying, will I find faith at the end of time, shows that, well, yes, he will, but no, he won't. Because if right now people are crying out, avenge me, and so that the righteous are crying, avenge me, but there's wicked that caused them pain in the first place. This is going to continue until judgment finally drops at the end and brings it all to an end. So we can see here that we are now living in a state where God is judging, but judgment is still to come. There's comfort in this for us, but we've got the question, why should we pray consistently if judgment is meant to come now, but it's not gonna come till later, why are we being told to pray consistently because our answers can be given quickly, but we still go to pray consistently because it's not coming quickly. is how it seems. So what's going on here? Now, I personally have been unable to come up with an answer, but I do think St. Cyril of Alexandria can get us on track to finding it. He notes that the desire for God to avenge us seems somewhat at odds with the idea that we should pray for the blessing of our enemies. When we look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, alongside the teaching of Jesus that says bless your enemies, we also see prayers which call on curses on the wicked. And then there's like the actions of Paul the Apostle in Acts where he curses a sorcerer and the sorcerer goes blind because of the curse. That doesn't seem like it's loving enemies. But Cyril says that praying for justice in the wicked is not inherently contradictory with blessing our enemies. The reason being is that when we pray for justice on our enemies, he says, it is designed to restrict them from doing evil to others, and I would think ultimately to themselves by incurring judgment in the future. Building on this then, it would seem it is possible to both bless and forgive those who have wronged us while still calling for their justice. So when we pray that they be well, when we pray, we pray that they will be well. When we bless, we are blessing that they will do well. But we can still call on justice so that they will not hurt others. And ultimately, so facing justice, they will be brought to repentance, which is the greatest blessing of all. With this in mind, I think the reason we have to keep praying for justice and justice is somewhat delayed it's not because God is tardy or apathetic, like the pathetic judge in this story. It is because he desires to give the wicked time to repent before he brings them face to face with their sin. Well, we did it. That's our first goal done. We've seen all the different ideas floating around in this story. And we go, all right, what's the message here? This is going to answer our question Will our longing for justice be fulfilled? Or are we going to be disappointed? And where is God in all this? We can answer this question now and we can confidently say we've discovered that the world is full of injustice but God is acting and God will continue to act to correct the injustices in this world and humanity also has a role to play in bringing justice. If the widow's brother's or brother-in-laws, or cousins, or uncles and nephews had stood up for her, justice would have been achieved a lot quicker. For that all mind then, God's going to bring justice and we have a role to play in bringing justice. Surely we can think, alright, let's find out the application, how can we practically apply this to our lives? Because you got our answer. Or do we? Is that is there more to this story i believe there is the problem is if we just settle for what we have now we are essentially treating this parable as the sole part of scripture this parable is one of many parts of the gospel of luke which in turn is one of 66 books of the bible and so when we take the entire witness of scripture together what we see is that we are not just the widow in this story, but we are also her opponents who brings wickedness and injustice on her. Can any of us honestly say that we have never wronged someone else? That we have never brought injustice on another? And if even the bad judge is gonna bring justice on a bad man, how much more can we escape justice from a good God? But the beauty of the Gospel of Luke is that there's so many stories of bad people getting forgiveness. There's a story of the prodigal son who disrespects his father, wastes his father's money, and is brought back into the family. The very next story after this one is of a fraudster who finds forgiveness because he leans on the grace of God but a priest who thinks he's a good man doesn't get it because he refuses to lean on God's grace and then again we find the story of Zacchaeus, another fraudster a guy who essentially extorts money out of people finds faith and forgiveness just because we are now or have been if we have come to faith, the opponent and the adversary in the story. doesn't mean that we can't end up like those at the end of the story, God's righteous people who call out for justice. We are not destined to face God's judgments unnecessary. If we don't have to, we can receive forgiveness as the alternative to judgment. And it's from that place, a place of grace, a place of forgiveness, a place from which we have received acceptance and favor by God, not from doing good deeds to earn it, but by leaning on grace, that we will now do justice to the world around us. That is how we are going to do the right thing, unlike the judge who failed in his task. And that is, it is that grace which gives us the courage to move forward, when like the widow's relatives, they failed. We can get back up from failure because we have been forgiven. Failure does not condemn us to failure forever because the forgiveness we receive allows us to stand back up and join the fight, to join in with God's work to redeem the world. With all this in mind then, we can, in good confidence, move on to the application. How are we going to apply this text to the way we live? The first, parable, so the first thing this parable shows us is how to react when we are personally wronged. It is not with violence. It is not with hate. And these days, more and more, I think, the, the knee-jerk reaction is to, to be mean and to, to cancel those who are wronged to us. But that's not what we're told here. We are told, leave the wrongs done to you at God's feet. He will avenge you. As for us having been inspired by grace, having felt what it's like to be forgiven, we will pray for blessing alongside justice. The second thing the parable shows us is that this widow was in a bad situation because bad people decided to harm her and sin against her. We cannot fight for the justice of others if we are actively wronging others ourselves now. If we are obstructing justice for others, then we need to consider what we can do to rectify those situations. Now, for some people, this might be a significant thing. There might be a lot of issues to work through. For the vast majority of us, however, I would would guess that it's gonna be more minor issues that are gonna come up repeatedly through life. For example, for those of you who work in schools, you'll be well aware of the fact that there's a lot of bullying that goes on, Students are mean to each other, and it's your job as a teacher or an educator to deal rightly and justly in those situations. I know myself, I've definitely been too light on some kids and unduly harsh on others. That favouritism at times has definitely played a role in how I've dealt with situations as well as my own personal tolerance for issues that day based on how happy I am or stressed or tired I am. And for maybe you're working in corporate or another situation like that, and maybe you've got some sort of management position, and it's your role to deal with the issues that are going on among staff members or going on with staff members. And we have to ask ourselves, how can we then act justly towards the people under our care and our workplace? And obviously that's gonna look different for each of you in your own workplaces, but this parable can get us thinking about what that might look like. The third thing we see and which we can apply is that the widow was let down by a family is was left without an advocate. So obviously advocacy applies more if you work in the legal field, if you're working in social work, if you're working in youth work, but there might be in our lives, even if we don't work in those fields, someone that we should be advocating for. There might be someone we have some sort of responsibility for. So the question goes, how do I, should I be advocating for this person? And so what's the best way of doing that? And that's something that I guess you can reflect on after tonight. But I wanted to encourage you, if you are an advocate for people, God does see your work, and God is pleased with the work you do, with the justice that you are seeking to bring to this world. Fourth and second last thing I'm going to say is that the widow sought justice through the appropriate means She goes to the court to find justice. She does not hire a bunch of vigilantes to beat the guy up and get the money or whatever it is. For all of us, we all have a legitimate way of trying to effect just change in our society. The government can both bring justice and cause a great deal of social issues. And in the next 12 months, we know there will be an election. So before we vote, I think we can all benefit from doing some research, even researching parties that you want to usually vote for, even if nothing else, just to give you some grace for those who think differently. So that way you can make an informed vote to know that your vote is achieving just outcomes for society, so it can choose outcomes which are best and not put unnecessary roadblocks in the way to justice. And finally, the most obvious thing in all of this is the widow sought justice by her constant and unyielding petitions to the judge. I want to caution us to use that tactic very wisely. Um, One of the commentators I read said that at the end of the day the judge was still an evil man, his heart was not changed, he was just annoyed into doing the right thing. If we are using persistent persuasion to get just outcomes, we've got to realise that the person we're trying to persuade is not doing whatever we want them to do, because their heart has changed, is because they feel like they're being forced into it. And eventually, that is going to sacrifice the relationship, even if justice is achieved. I think we've got to be careful with it. We shouldn't apply it to situations really nearly. If we apply it to inappropriate situations, then we are not going to be seen as chance of justice, we're going to be seen as unrighteous naggers. So I think it needs to be used carefully. Appropriately for the right causes, and probably as a last resort, because the widow does not badger the judge until she's exhausted all of her court options. So, with all these applications in mind, with all this theology in mind, we see that ultimately God is a God of justice, and it is His grace that spurs us on to do just things in this world. And so, I'm going to ask the man to come up now as I pray. But let's take from this that it is God's grace and not our own efforts that need to sustain us as we work for justice in this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much, Lord, that you have this parable in the Scriptures to show us how to live rightly, how to act for justice. I thank you that it is your grace that moves us forward to do what is right, so that it's not our own efforts. We have to rely on our own strength because we know, Lord, that we will eventually fatigue when such great obstacles are before us. But knowing that you are over it all, Lord, you reign above it all, you will bring justice and you will use us to some degree to do that. Let us be encouraged by the role you have for us and let the grace that you've given us propel us forward in that mission. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.